thanks everyone for tuning in. I don't know where it means at, to be honest. <laughs> so while we wait for him to come on through here, we got some questions in the queue. Let's just jump right into it, man. When I mean gets here, we'll take a pause on the calls. We'll have a chat with our good buddy and uh, we'll go from there. So CJ, let's get it rolling. CJ, how we doing? I'm good, Jay. Thanks so much for letting me in here. You got it, man. How can I be of help? Yeah, uh, so I'm a Jazz fan, so this offseason's already been pretty crazy for me, as I'm sure you know. Um, but today, um, I've seen quite a bit of reports on both kind of local Jazz side um, and also some local um, New York people saying that a, a Donovan Mitchell trade is essentially done, uh, just not official yet. I'm wondering if you've heard anything on that because normally the people that I go to for for jazz news have been real quiet um, and they were kind of the same way right before the Rudy Gobert trade happened. So I'm wondering if you've heard anything from your side different. Yeah, I've got nothing new since I last spoke here on Tuesday, which at that point in time, um, I said, and I've been, I've been thinking this pretty much ever since, you know, the the Jazz made it clear they were actually willing to talk on him. Um, it seems pretty clear to me that the Knicks are the obvious front runners to land Donovan. It seems like a matter of when, not if, that deal will get completed. I got no sense on actual timing. Um, you know, a lot of people I've spoken to in the league um, are expecting uh, it to come, but we don't – I don't really have a, a, a clear picture on, on when, so, um, or, or when exactly it will happen. So I, I, I'm not to say the reporting that's out there is wrong. I just can't confirm it. Okay. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. You got it. Um, is Amin here yet? No, Amin. Okay. Isaac. What's going on, Isaac? What's up? Uh, I actually had some questions about some of those dubious reports from, well, sources, not necessarily dubious reports, but less likely sources. But uh, I guess I'll uh, switch gears. And uh, I've seen a lot of reports about the Lakers targeting, you know, like Buddy Hilds of the world or possibly some of the jazz remnants that are going on there. And I was wondering if, you know, what do they have to offer besides THT? And does THT even have much of a market these days? I'll uh, take my answer off air. There you go. Um, that's a pretty good question. Um, and to your point, I mean, the only real trade ammo the Lakers have right now is THT and picks and Russell Westbrook's expiring contract, which, you know, there are going to be teams out there who are going to enjoy the opportunity of two first round picks, potentially, you know, with, with, with the way the league's at right now with, with, if they're able to get those unprotected or to have pretty light protections, who's to say where the Lakers will be come 27 and 29. Um, so to take two, if you're a team like Indiana to get two first round picks and an expiring contract, you know, I have previously been told from people who have knowledge of the Pacers um, that they don't really uh, expect, or they haven't expected Pacers ownership there. Um, who, you know, Herb Simon goes by the book. Um, you know, I, I was told by someone involved 
that, you know, the answer to the question of, hey, why didn't the Pacers give DeAndre in a bunch of complicated clauses on his contract that would have made it challenging um, for the Suns to match? You think back to the Jeremy Lin deal. Um, you think back to Chandler Parsons' contract in Dallas, which Daryl Morris said that made it almost untradeable because I think it was a a two year with the player option. So basically, he was you know almost guaranteed to walk out the door. Um, you know, a lot of the reason or a major factor in that reasoning, I was told why the Pacers didn't do that. Herb Simon apparently, you know, is is has has a code in this dirty game and didn't want to make a rival owner, you know, have to stress about that. Apparently that, that, that was one of the reasons I was told. So I've also heard he doesn't necessarily want to pay a buyout for Russ to pay a guy 40 some million dollars to not play for him, but maybe that's changed now that the Pacers are in a different situation. They really are in this youth movement. Um, they missed out on their big ticket guy in, in DeAndre Ayton. So, um, you know, to get two first round picks for Miles Turner and Buddy Heald, and long-term salary relief. It does make sense, and Buddy's obviously been a piece that um, the Lakers and Rob Palenka especially have been targeting, as I've reported previously. Like, even after he got traded to Indy, that's a bonus deal. Um, they were looking uh, – the Lakers called Indiana and tried to see if they could still get Buddy Heald. So – Eric Gordon's definitely going to be a name that the, the Lakers continue to monitor. Um, but I really uh, – I, I think a lot of those efforts and, and, and the spirit of our show, I'm not saying – I'm not saying this is what the Lakers are definitively doing. Let's please not have you know a quote of me saying this. But one would think, just based off of this, this, the, the parameters of the marketplace being you can only trade with 30 teams, I would think, um, I would think a lot of the conversation, or, or maybe a lot of the Lakers, you know, looking to have these conversations, is also trying to apply a bit of pressure on the Nets to to really, you know, finalize their talks about Kyrie potentially. But also, if the Nets are so firm in their standpoint, um, which it seems like they ha- they have been, that they're not even really considering moving Kyrie until they get clarity with KD, and that. They're gonna, you know, hold a hard bargain with the Lakers on a two-team thing with Russ. Then it does behoove the Lakers to start to look elsewhere. Um, if if their, you know, their golden goose isn't really coming, but I mean, clearly the Kyrie is the best outcome, and and it's something that at least seems to be plausible. But um, I don't know the metrics, or I, I don't I don't know how the mechanics get done to make that deal happen. Like I've been saying all along, um, I, I think. It's going to be more complicated, and I think that's potentially why the Lakers start to look at other avenues on how to make this team better, where LeBron is saying on the shop that it eats at him when he doesn't have winner bus guys, and he's just trying to win a title, and he loves that winner bus pressure. Like, they're a winner bus. They're going to explore all their options to try to get someone like Buddy Heald um, and Miles Turner and Eric Gordon. And I mean, those are the those are the, the names that are out there. I'm sure they're looking elsewhere too. But they're going to keep trying to look to try to upgrade this roster and try to move Russ elsewhere. Like that, that's clearly what the Lakers, you know, final bits of the off season and as they go towards training camp. And even if we get to training camp with Russell Westbrook in LA, heading towards the trade deadline, 
that's going to continue to be one of LA's goals. Sean, what's going on, my friend? What's up? How are you? I'm doing well. How can I help you? Okay, so this is more of just uh, what your opinion would be. So when it comes to the Knicks um, trading for Donovan Mitchell, I see that they would trade probably two more, two of their younger players. So my guess is that they would either trade um, a combination of uh, Deuce McBride, Quentin Grimes, Obi Toppin, and Emmanuel Quickly. So I was just wondering uh, what two out of the four would, who, would you rather keep on the Knicks' perspective? Who would I rather keep? See, that's, that's, that's an interesting question. Um, I think, I mean, Grimes is someone I was pretty high on back uh, when he was at Kansas before. I think he, he, he transferred to Houston, right? Yeah, that, I believe so. Am I right, Sean? I believe so. I'm not sure though. I don't, I don't, I don't watch college as much as I used to. But I remember when he was first, he was a big shot freshman prospect at Kansas, and he didn't look so good. Um, just inconsistent. What have you? I mean, Bill Self's system is not designed to optimize wings. Um, that's why Joel Embiid prospered so much there in Kansas. That's why uh, you dope guys at Buki became a first round pick. Um, that surprised to me that he, he flourished in more of a pro-style system under Kelvin Sampson in Houston and the fact he's doing what he's doing now. The guy can stroke it. He's got size. Um, I really – I'm really bullish on where he can grow. I know I, I've heard some Knicks fans, you know, being here in New York I, on, on local radio and whatnot, not talk about him becoming a potential starter-level player. Like, yeah, I think that's in the cards. I mean, I'm not saying this guy's going to be a future all-star one day, but – he he's got a lot of talent. He's got he's got the body. He's got the stroke. Um, it seems like he's you know worked hard defensively to, to get through into Tom Thibodeau's rotation, and it seems like he's got a little bit of, of stuff to him off the bounce. So um, you know, quickly, I, I've never really thought his value matches what Knicks fans uh, have have kind of you know lot like Knicks fans have treated Emmanuel quickly like he's Tyrese Maxey ever since he became. Uh, you know, a young piece in that program. Yeah. Um, I don't necessarily believe he's on that level, but I, I don't know. My opinion is about this stuff doesn't matter more, much more than yours. Let's be honest. Like it's, it's up to these talent evaluators on, on what they can ultimately, you know, get done and, and, and their valuations matter a lot more than mine. Yeah. Cause uh, when Obi and uh quick play together, they have pretty great chemistry. Um, when, Quickly plays over 35 minutes. He averages 20 points per game as well as uh, five boards and six assists, whereas Obi averages 25 points, seven boards, and three assists. So they play pretty well together, and when they get minutes, uh, they sure do shine. There you go, man. Well, I appreciate you calling in as always. Yep. Thanks, Jake. You got it, man. We're going to go to Eric. Eric. Oh, now it's George somehow. George, what's going on? Hey, uh, you got me? Yeah. How you doing? Uh, thank, thanks for taking the call, uh, Sean. You, uh, you're awesome. Keep it up, man. <laughs> um, uh, Jake, just wondering uh, if uh, anyone else finds it hilarious that uh, Tim Connolly and co. Uh, totally wrecked everyone else's summer plans. Um, I, see, I see what you're saying. I mean... <laughs> I think you know Zach Lowe. I think in his story had a question or had a quote from an executive calling 
the the Wolves haul reckless. Like, I will say it was the number one talking point at Summer League when I got drinks with agents or you know, met up with team people or talked to just random people in the league orbit all week. What do you think about the Rudy Gobert trade? Was it an overpay? Do you like it? Was it worth it? People making the arguments for and against. Like, it definitely has sense of shockwaves through the NBA marketplace, and it's absolutely, you know, established a benchmark uh, for what Donovan Mitchell's going to have to be dealt for, what Kevin Durant's going to have to be dealt for, but also in the DeJounte Murray trade, too. The DeJounte Murray trade happened before the Rudy Gobert trade, right? And I don't think the Rudy Gobert trade would have been um, as expensive of a haul uh, for the Jazz to take, for the Wolves to pay, if DeJounte didn't go for three picks and two unprotected. Um, all these deals are are dependent or reflective on on the market that you know exists at that point in time. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's it's definitely clear to say that the Rudy deal, what what Tim Connolly and his new front office paid to go get him, has has really impacted the marketplace moving forward here. John, what's going on? Hey, Jake, thanks for taking my call. Uh, so you I'm a Blazers it. fan, and, you know, the roster is filled up at 15 now. But just looking at their front court, it's really weak, and there's not a lot of depth. There's basically no backup center to use of Nurkic. And I'm just curious if you've heard anything about, you know, Joe Cronin still making calls, of if there's any way he can just squeeze out, like, one more forward or one more center on that roster to help them make a playoff push. You know, Jared Vanderbilt is a guy that everyone in Portland is talking about. I don't know if Utah would be willing to trade him. Just curious your thoughts on that. Well, Utah is definitely willing to trade everyone. Um, I think for the right price, they're clearly open for business. Vanderbilt, I think, is someone uh, who would definitely help Portland. He's got a lot of he's got a lot of value. A lot, a lot, a lot of teams have called on Jared Vanderbilt. I don't know the number. I don't really have any specific teams that I've heard of, but last I talked to Utah about it, he was the guy who was getting the most calls, the most incoming calls of of, uh, income, of, of all the players that were of that Rudy Gobert return, which makes sense being that he's young. He's on one of the most valued deals in the league. I'm going to look it up now. i uh sitting here prepared at my laptop here. I'm pretty sure his deal is two years, as two years remaining around $4 million. Um, yeah, I remember it was weird last year. You know, he didn't sign until really late in the offseason. I thought that was really strange that he didn't have more interest a year ago. Yeah, he's got two years left, you know, right around four and a half million. So, I mean, he clearly was capable of playing starter level minutes um, on a team that almost made the second round of the playoffs. So, I mean, he's got value. And I, I think the fact that he's only 23, too, I mean, he's going to. Jared Vanderbilt is not someone you're trading for and expecting that he's going to have this massive ceiling, right? Um, but he clearly plays winning basketball. He's one of the best defenders in the league, versatile to switch across multiple positions. There's going to be teams – there's absolutely going to be teams continuing to call about him as long as he's on this deal. Um, and there will be a price that the Jazz will ulti- – I mean, they moved Royce O'Neal for a first. I was hurt. I was told that was the price for Mike Conley, for Bogdanovich. Um before the draft, I, I heard from one person that that was the price for Jared Vanderbilt too. 
Um, I don't have that you know, on complete solid. You know, I don't have a second source saying that. I'll be honest, but that would be my educated guess too. On I think it have to be around that price. I mean, he's he's not he's not a like if Jared Vanderbilt was in this draft, he wouldn't have been a lottery pick, right? But you probably would have paid a first round pick to get a guy like that at twenty three on this contract value, what he can do. Um, so. I, I I would I would say that's a pretty strong educated guess on what the cost would be. Does Portland have the ammo to do that? Um, and do they have the stomach to do that? I I haven't heard that's been discussed, but it certainly seems within the realm of possibility. All right, thanks, Jake. You got it. Um, we will go to Joe. It's a Lakers question, Joe. Joe, you're on mute. All right, Joe, going to have to move on to the next caller, but pop back in the queue if you can. Eric, how we doing? Hey, Jake, can you hear me? I hear you. What's going cool, on? Cool, Thanks, appreciate it. So, of course, uh, I'm a Suns fan, so... Um... Uh, just a quick question and uh, on another Katie question for you. Um, so, you know, of course, reports are that, uh, you know, Nets are saying, hey, if, if no team is going to offer what they want, that, you know, they're just going to keep them. And I guess just, you know, from everything from the reports that we're hearing is that, you know, the, it was in a toxic environment and people didn't want to play there, what have you. So what are your thoughts about actually the Nets going into the season and keeping them? I just, I guess I just feel that, you know, if Katie doesn't trade his, uh, I'm sorry, if he doesn't change his stance in terms of, you know, the trade request that, you know, eventually he's just going to try to push some pressure on them. So what, what are your thoughts on just on that front that, you know, essentially the Nets will just keep them until they get what they want? So I think, I mean, the Nets are clearly hoping, clearly hoping Kevin Durant looks up their roster and says, Shit, this is a pretty good place to win the title. Um, that you don't trade a first for Royce O'Neal, you don't go out and try to get TJ Warren on on a minimum. Um, you know, Joe Harris is not someone that the Nets are looking to salary dump. That's just not a thing. Like when he talks to Nets people, top to bottom of the organization, from high level front office people to to lower level coaches, like everyone in that franchise was talking about how not having Joe Harris was such a detrimental factor for them in the postseason. And in the end of the regular season, that, that wore out KD so much to the point where he was, you know, running on fumes against Brook or against Boston. So, you know, you bring him back healthy, and it sounds like he's doing well. Seth Curry's there. Patty Mills is back. I, I just think that, you know, until, until Brooklyn gets any type of messaging and, and – I haven't heard this. Anyone who thinks they know what, what Kevin Durant's going to do if he's still on the roster come training camp either, you know, has talked to KD face-to-face or they're just they're full of it. Because I don't think he – I mean, I, I don't want to even say that. But it doesn't seem like there's any real clear plan on what's going to happen if he's still there. Like, the Sixers, for example, were very well prepared for Ben Simmons this time last year that he was going to not report, going to cause a stink, going to do, you know, what he ended up doing. And I I don't want to be dismissive of the mental health stuff, but 
clearly there was decision making done on behalf of Ben Simmons and his representation uh, in order to kind of force their hand to get him traded. Right. Mm-hmm. There's no, there's no obvious indication that that's going to happen yet. And until, until Brooklyn has that, I mean, I think they've got every incentive to just hold out and act like they're not going to trade him to try to draw out better offers. I think that is what's going to happen. Yeah. Makes sense. Appreciate it. You got it. Matt, how are you? I'm good. Can you hear me all right? Hearing you loud and clear. All right. Uh, the last guy, Eric, kind of stole a little bit of my thunder, but I'm in the opposite opposite perspective here because I'm a Nets fan and I'm praying that this is, you know, that what you said is what ends up happening, that they go into camp with them and things work out. To that end, I guess I got a two-parter for you. One is, to your knowledge, to what you've heard, have there been any overtures made from either ownership or the front office towards KD in an effort to to see where he's at or maybe just making amends? And then I guess the second part would be, as the roster currently stands, they could really use a stretch big. And they were previously linked to a guy like John Collins. You know, maybe it would be a Joe Harris trade. Have you heard any anything revolving around how they might try to round out the roster? I um, I think the John, from my knowledge, uh, the John Collins stuff was coming from Atlanta. It was Atlanta calling Brooklyn. That, that's what I was told. Um, so I, I don't know necessarily if John Collins is really a target um, for, for the Nets. I mean, if he was, look, at this point, if there's any team that really wanted to go get John Collins, it would seem like it'd be a pretty easy thing to do. He's been on the trade block for months now, the entire offseason. The price can't – I mean – the price can't be that high unless it is, and the Hawks are just holding firm and saying, "Come meet it." Someone's going to meet this price, but I just, I, I, I just don't see that. So to, to bring it back to Brooklyn side of things, um, you know, I, I think they're feeling pretty confident about where their roster stands. I have not heard anything about them going out and getting more big man help, um, but ultimately, you know. The, the questions about whether Kevin Durant's going to come back or, you know, how they can continue to round out this roster around him. Now, a backup big man I don't think is really going to dramatically swing um, Brooklyn's title odds next year or what have you. Um, oh, but- I, I meant more from just an interpersonal trying to communicate, but I'll I'll keep it brief because I see Amin is up here. You're good, man. No, I mean, I – I haven't heard anything about them trying to get in touch with him. I mean, I'm sure they have, but I, I'm I'm not privy to any of that. I'll I'll be honest. Understood. Thanks, man. You got it, man. I mean, what's going on, man? I'd let me tell you what's going on. First of all, a thousand <laughs> apologies. That's it's my good, bad. Man. It's all good. What it was, and Jake, you'll appreciate this. I was in what we like to call the expense zone. <laughs> where I was doing expense reports and I got a good rhythm. And you know, when you got a good rhythm, everything gets blocked out. Everything in life, food, I haven't had lunch. I'm, I'm just sitting here churning, churning expense <laughs> reports. And then I looked at my phone and I saw, still here. If you, I'm like, oh no, that was at one o'clock. What time is it? And it's like 125. <laughs> and it, I, you know, I, it's like, it's one of those, I really feel bad, and at the same time, I'm like, you can't blame me, man. The expense zone. 
it gets the us all. Zone. Well, fortunately, with our wonderful live audio platform, we had plenty of callers to fill the time. So we've just been, we've just been, you know, waiting for you, you to grace us with your presence, man. And now it's here. I'm here and I'm I'm here and I am ready for whatever topics, questions, whatever you got. I'm here for it. Well, thank you for joining. I really do appreciate it. Um, we've done a lot about the Knicks and Donovan and Kyrie and and Kevin Durant. Is there something outside of that vortex that you've been most intrigued by this summer? Is there a, a loose a loose end that could somehow be tied up between now and the trade deadline or just a general team at a roadblock or a crossroads or a certain player, an executive or a coach that I'm, I'm making it pretty broad that you're kind of most intrigued about. That is not this uh, ticket a item that we continue to be, you know, making our, you know, spinning around in our heads about. I'll, I'll give you one, Jake. Everyone was really focused on a particular restricted free agent. Would he return to this team that he contributed so much to the success towards? He's <laughs> young. He's exciting. All that stuff. And it was the other Aiden. No one talked about Colin Sexton, who still was just kind of out there chilling. No. Mm-hmm. Have we gotten anything like how far apart they are? Uh, is it a, a question of role? They've really done a remarkable job, both parties, of keeping it fairly quiet. But within that, we don't have a lot of information. And I'm surprised, and maybe it's because it's Cleveland, and Colin Sexton is a good player, but not like a marquee player. But the, the idea that no one's talking about that at all, um, that, that, that has been a little bit puzzling to me. Puzzling being that you would think there'd be other teams that would be interested if Cleveland and him were so far apart or just right. puzzling. Yeah. All of it, all of it, that there's no interest from anyone else. Obviously the, the cap space is all but dried up other than Indiana, who I don't think would be interested, but uh, sign and trade kind of, you know, digging your nose in there, seeing what's going on. It's just, it's very rare for there to be this much radio silence from everybody, right? Usually you get a little bit of a, the agent rattles some cages out there like, hey, yeah. I want to pay my guy, you know? Uh, or the the team might come out with the, this guy has a ridiculous ass given the role that's expected of him and he's coming off of that meniscus injury. We've gotten nothing and that's, to me, that's the, uh, that's uh, made me go, huh? Like I just think about it the other day. I was going through, you know, trying to uh, look up, I guess the uh, the value of someone else's deal on Spotrack. Spot track. We don't know. We still don't know how to pronounce it. Yeah, I don't know Spotrack? how to pronounce it. Spot- <laughs> yeah, that's one of those things you read but you never hear out loud. I actually um, used to think it was sport track, like sport. Me and too. Then I, and then eventually, I was like, oh, there's no R in there. Yeah, me too. I thought it like like that. Ford X- Explorer that was like a half pickup truck and a half <laughs> Ford <Yeah>. Explorer for <laughs> the sport track. Yeah, I, I was doing that for a while. But um, but yeah, I was looking up someone else's stuff and I was you know, going through the free agent signings and it was like Colin Sexton. I'm like, oh, he's still out there. He's still, he's just chilling. And so I, I, I'm curious. I wonder what it, what's going through his mind. 
whether this is just a waiting game. I know Cleveland in the past, there's no strangers to taking it all the way to the limit in terms of uh, restrictive free agency. Remember Anderson Verjao one year got his deal after the year started. Unsigned into the start of well beyond camp. So um, that's one, I guess, I, I'd be curious about. Uh, but, you know, every, everything else is, is dominating the headlines right now. Everyone wants to talk about Don yeah. Mitchell and Danny Ainge's mad scientist uh, approach to this. And, and uh, you know, and obviously Kevin Durant, where he's going to end up in, in Kyrie Irving as well. Well, I'll say this about Sexton because I do have to write next week. And I don't want to say too much. <laughs> oh. But I'll say <laughs> – I'll say part of why I think there hasn't been a lot of stink about it. There hasn't been the agent rattling the cages, as you said, or the team putting out, oh, this guy wants this asking price. I do think both sides would prefer there to remain a a marriage between Colin Sexton and Cleveland. But it's not just a relationship, it's business, right? So I don't think... I think both sides, at least from my understanding, they seem to be pretty intent on trying to keep their relationship solid, even though the business might not be seeing eye to eye. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, yes and no. Yes and no. And here's why I say yes and no. Because clearly they want things to be amicable, right? But yes. also clearly they're – is a gulf between the two sides. And so when confronted with a gulf like this, there's, I guess, a a likelihood, a, a fairly large likelihood that this is not going to end up business-wise the way one of these parties wants it to be. Meaning there's going to be a, a, a split or a divorce of some sort, or at the at the most optimistic version of that, is he accepts a qualifying offer and plays out the year. And typically that tends to mean I'm out of here. It, it, it like, it means, okay, I'm here for now. I'll take this money and I'll go play. But it doesn't portend to we're going to have a, a, a long and illustrious, uh, you know, relationship. For Sexton, his, if I'm not mistaken, I'm going to find his, his um uh, his qualifying offer it's it's, it's like 7 million that, yeah it, it's 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 not something that cleveland would just kind of like oh just mark it off or whatever but at the same time it's also 7.228 yep not 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 the type of number that sexton would say well now i can rest easy for the rest of my life right it, it, it's it is the type of money that'll be okay in the meantime, in between time, but obviously I want more. And to me, qualifying offer hurts him more than it does the Cavs. So I guess I, I, I wonder how polite everyone can remain, given that, you know, at some point something's got to give. Agreed. I mean, he's got to get paid at some point. Right now, he doesn't have a yeah. contract, right? Yeah. Um, 
from like the team side of things, obviously for, for anyone who's listening, I doesn't know that Abid worked many years in an NBA front office. Uh, you're missing the point, but from the team side of things, uh, I mean, what is kind of like the, the, the thought that you had back then or are you and your, your, your coworkers did your colleagues did about this, the general concept of restricted free agency, because it doesn't really seem like anyone really likes it. It seems like just kind of a nuisance that's there to protect these top uh, prospects from just bolting the second that they, that they, that they can. Well, yeah, it's, it's protecting the team. Any, any team person who, who complains about it is missing the point. It's for you, dumbass. <laughs> like if, if the players had their way, like, no, I just leave. And, and there is, you know, significant research that shows that just the mere fact of being a restricted free agent limits the number of offers you have. Um, it, it's not that like, oh, no one wants to pay Colin Sexton, even if it's the max, even if it's $132 million over four years. It's not that no one wants to do that. It's that no one wants to do to move the heavens and earth to make something like that happen only to have that offer sheet matched. That's what happened with DeAndre Ayton. It's right. We saw Ayton. There was a holding pattern, holding pattern, and then all of a sudden Indiana jumps up and says, to hell with it. I want him. And then they got matched within 20 minutes. Yeah. So, so the idea about restrictive free agency is that it automatically signals to other parties that, like, don't even bother being interested over here because chances are they're going to keep them. Uh, and when they when they don't want to keep them, when it's usually as you know as vast difference as that, typically what happens is either a they would have declined the qualifying offer anyway, made them an unrestricted free agent. That's happened a bunch of times. Or b you put so much stuff into the structure of the contract, nobody would want to do that. So when I was in Phoenix, I was coming on the tail end of the Joe Johnson contract. So Joe Johnson was, uh, you know, in, in the same uh, situation as I guess what RJ Barrett would be in right now. It's summertime. We're heading into, you know, the, you know, my extension window between now and the start of the, the, the new season. Allegedly, Arn Tellum, who rep- represented Joe Johnson, said they wanted 45 over seven. And the Suns wouldn't budge over like 42 or 42 and a half. And, you know, the, 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 as the rumor has it, Robert Sarver, the owner of the Suns, who just bought the team, said this team won 25 games or whatever it was the year before. And you, ju- you guys have just asked me to put in all of these investments because they just signed Amari to a max extension. Sean Marion was already on his max deal. And then Steve Nash, had been signed for $60 million over five years that summer. So he's like, I just invested somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, $250 million in future contracts, um, and you want me to pay this guy? And, and, you know, this team won 30 games or whatever it was the year before? And so he said, no, I'm not going to pay. I'm not going to budge over, like, two and a half or $3 million. Case closed. If he's as good as you guys say he is, we'll play out the year and we'll pay him next year next summer when he's a restricted free agent, we have his rights. Well, of course, the Suns won 60-something games, and they went to the conference finals, and Joe Johnson was an all-star, and he was great. 
and they've got the restricted free agency and the Hawks came with like a $70 million deal for five years, but they front loaded it so that he had a trade kicker. He had all every little thing that you could think of to make it unpalatable. And then they front loaded it so that November one, he was due $20 million. Yep. Cash. And Robert was like, oh, I can't do that. And so it was like, now what happened was they never put in the offer sheet. They, they, it was communicated that this is what the deal is going to be. Y'all trying to do that? Or, or, and let's play this restricted free agency game or not. And so that made the Suns come to the table for a sign and trade, the sign and trade that eventually saw Boris Diaw and a first round pick that became Robin Lopez and in exchange for Joe Johnson. Now here's the kicker. Boris Diaw went on to, you know, be sixth man of the year and like, uh, or, or whatever, most improved player, excuse me. And they went to conference finals again. And Robin Lopez obviously was, was instrumental in another conference finals run, and they were two good players. But I don't think anyone would deny they'd rather have had Joe Johnson at $45 million over seven years. Because it was just a no-brainer. The dude was 6'8", six, 6'9", six, and could play the four and the three and the two and the one, and could shoot and pass and everything. It's like, ah, man, I wish you would just paid him what he was worth when we had the chance. So restricted free agency in that sense, kind of saved them in the sense that it allowed them to salvage something out of Joe Johnson. But the reality is, overall, restricted free agency helps the teams because the teams are the ones that are, or the incumbent team, because it allows them to protect their assets and to basically have a beware of dog sign around their house and have nobody come sniffing around. Um, you said a couple things there that... I want I want to I want to ask about my guy Boris Diaw because he was my favorite player back in the day. I was in I was in sixth grade. I mean, during the wonderful oh five oh six Phoenix Suns oh, season, terrific. Boris Diaw was definitely hands down my favorite player because I was a slightly overweight. But <laughs> if I pat myself on the back, skilled, undersized big man in middle school. And early, uh, early high school, and I, I, I loved his game. I've heard the stories. I got to interact with him a little bit in the early days of my career. Do you have a best untold Boris Diaw story to share with us today? Untold? Mm, probably not. I've, I've almost told almost all of them over the years. Well, I've but, heard about you know, the I've heard about the jump on the yeah, uh, that's when he walked in holding coffee. Yeah, that's that's Griff's favorite story. Um, David Griffin, who was uh, yeah. who was our assistant GM at the time in Phoenix, is now running the the Pelicans. Now, I guess mine would be so. The thing about Boris, you got to remember is Boris's mom was the greatest French basketball player in women's his, women's basketball history. I did like, know she, that. She is like the Michael Jordan of, or I guess the Cheryl Swoops of French basketball, or I guess, who, or Cheryl Miller or whoever you deem to be the greatest female basketball player. Like that's, so Boris grew up around the game at the highest possible level. He went to uh, an academy 
that was literally just a basketball academy. He went to school for basketball. It's the same school that Roni Turioff and Tony Parker and Mikel Pietrus and all those, that French generation that went to a couple Olympic uh, games and stuff. That's, yeah. that's where he, he went to school. So Boris is like what you call it, what the actors would call classically educated. <laughs> right? Imagine if, you, you know, if, if, you're, if your, your mother was like, um, you know, Helen Mirren, and you went to like Juilliard, like that's what Boris did, but the basketball version of that. So his IQ is like top five of anybody I've been around, easily. Like easily, easily, it's like, you know, Boris throw him up there with like Steve Nash, LeBron James, Rashid Wallace, uh, you know, Andre Vidal, just genius level basketball player. Having said that, <laughs> ever been around someone who's very smart, particularly a kid, you know that that can be trying and problematic because they will test you on everything. They don't just kind of go along with stuff. They're like, why are we doing it this way? Why are we, why are we doing that way? Whatever. So, so sounds like how my bosses at Sports Illustrated would talk about me. <laughs> <laughs> so exactly. So, so. Uh, we would be, we would say, hey, we're going to guard the pick and roll this way on this part of the court. Every time this guy's got the ball over here, we're going to do it this way. And then we'd go out there in the game, and then he would not do that. And then we'd come back, and we'd watch the film, like, yeah, he, you know, like, oh, you messed up. I'd say, Boris, you got to be there, man. You can't be there, da, da, da. And Boris would say, Yes, but uh, if I was there, then it would open up the avenue for this guy over here to drive, and he's much more dangerous over there than this guy over here. Blah, blah, blah. So I was over here, and it's like we go back and watch the <laughs> film. I was like, "Son of a bitch, he's right!" Like, but it's like that's not the point. Like, you just we gotta we got to do execute our game plan in order to you know be able to say, okay, now we'll make adjustments. But if we're never executing the game plan, how can we ever know what adjustments to make? Long story short, Boris was like that all the time. His nickname was Yes, but everything was. Yes, but uh, if we do it this way, then we are going to do it this way. And, and it's just like sometimes it just drove you insane, but also made you realize, man, this guy's smart. And he just kind of processed everything in a, in a different way than, than most players. The other thing I'd say is Boris had this thing about like, what? He, he wanted to be treated with like a certain amount of respect. And if he felt like that respect was not there, then he was like, well, why, why, should I, why should I even try? So we had a coach, Terry Porter, who did not understand Boris. He, he came from an era where like power forwards are power forwards. You rebound and you block shots and you set screens and you grab a rebound on the defensive end. You look for your point guard and you hand them the ball. And, and then you like, whereas Boris under Mike D'Antoni, he was allowed to like his favorite player of all time was Magic Johnson. So Mike was like, "You want to be Magic Johnson? Be Magic Johnson. Grab a rebound, lead the break, bust out." You know the stuff that Draymond does now. Boris was doing fifteen years ago, right? So going from Mike to Terry Porter was like going from I don't know, like going from like Coachella to uh, you know San Quentin. It was just like night and day, right? <laughs> And so um, Boris grabs a rebound in training camp and like he starts to bust out and Terry blows the whistle, stops everything and says, Boris, no, you got a rebound, you got to look for your guard. 
that looks for the guard because Terry, again, is old school where your bigs don't dribble. To Boris, this is like the most insulting thing ever. It's like telling him you're not smart enough, skilled enough, capable enough to lead a break. So what Boris starts doing in games is he'll grab a rebound, take two hard dribbles up the floor like he's about to bust out and then stop and turn and look for Steve (laughs) and literally hand the ball to him like a quarterback to the running back, but like if the quarterback was handing like an infant, like just very cradled and and just hands it right to him. And then he'd turn and he'd look at the bench and then he'd jog up court. (laughs) That's that's pretty good, man. You delivered. You delivered. I mean, I loved Boris so much. In my freshman year of college, I needed to take one level of Spanish to like test out of Spanish. You had to take like three years worth of Spanish, and I was I was able to test into the third year. On the very first day, like a teacher already told us, you had to like come in with a presentation about a, a public figure. I gave my Spanish presentation on Boris Dio. Huh. You're just a funny I guy. You gonna say you, you, I thought you were going to say you dropped out of Spanish and took up French, even though it set you back years. <laughs> to honor to honor the great the great Dia before us? No. Yeah. <laughs> um, I want to ask you one more Phoenix question because there, there are people I was talking to in the league who were like, look, all this is for show. The Suns, I don't know if I agree with them, but the way they're handling this, they're going to match eight no matter what. They're not just going to let him walk. They're not letting the number one pick who they picked over, Luca and Trey mm-hmm. and others, leave for nothing. That's right. So then, sure enough, they match it. There's all this reporting coming out that the Suns never intended to let him go. They're oh, more than willing not. to. They're more than willing to pay the tax. Of course, they're they going to pay everything that they can to uphold a contender here. And then everyone I talked to in the league is saying, look out for Dario Saric and Jay Crowder, maybe even Landry Shamit, that they could potentially be looking to make trades to try to duck the tax yet again. Where's the truth here, man? What, 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 do, you, what do you make of this current Phoenix, current embattled Phoenix Suns ownership, if you will, uh, and their appetite for paying the luxury tax for this particular team to compete for title after title robert has always said he will pay the tax for a team that's uh competing for a title and i think he's shown that in the past when when we were competing for a title we, we were taxpayers and we we weren't under directives to get under the tax however <laughs> with a capital h we were under directives to reduce that tax bill as much as we can so if you guys think about uh, uh, a, a, a guy named Kurt Thomas, he played for the Knicks and he played for the Heat, but he played for the Suns. Played for the Suns on a team that was uh, pretty successful. We went, that was a team that uh, one that went to the conference finals, and then the next year we lost in the second round to the Spurs. That was the infamous Robert Ory hip check game. 
I know so, that as the Steve Nash with the broken nose band-aid that you couldn't keep on your nose game. That's yeah, how I remember that. Because it, it wasn't a broken nose. It was a cut on top of the bridge of his nose. That's, why it, was so, that's why it was so hard for the band-aid to stay on top. To this, People, to this day, whenever I struggle to keep a band-aid on, I think about Steve Nash. <laughs> yeah, that was one of my favorite things is like all these like boxing trainers. Like, oh, they don't know what they're doing. They're giving on sports center. Like, guys, it wasn't a broken nose. He wasn't bleeding yeah. from inside his nose. He was bleeding from on top of it. And that's why it was so hard to stop the bleeding. Um, but anyway, so Kurt Thomas was a massive contributor for that team. And that was our best defensive version of the Suns up until that point of that Nash, Amari, Sean Marion incarnation. Like, this is the best defensive version. A lot of it was because of Roger Bell, Sean Marion, and Kurt Thomas. So, and, and to a lesser extent, James Jones. Like, those were our guys, right? But the owner's on our ass about the luxury tax. And so Steve Kerr, who's just become the GM of the team, his first kind of front office role, first role pretty much other than playing or calling games. And he's getting stressed every day from, from the owner. And eventually, he ends up sending Kurt Thomas to the Sonics. Um, Sam Presti was the new GM there. And two first-round picks. That's not Kurt Thomas for two first-round picks. That was Kurt Thomas into their cap space and two first-round picks completely unprotected in order for that to happen. Ladies and gentlemen, that was the first instance of I'm going to use my cap space to pull out assets from from teams to take (laughs) off their salary issues. Sam Presley did the first in his first offseason as a general manager back in 2007, 15 years ago. And then this is the fun part. So the two first round picks, one of them turned into Quincy Pondexter, the other one turned into Serge Ibaka, right? But then here's the fun part. He then took Kurt Thomas and six months later, sent him to San Antonio for Brent Barry, Francisco Elson, and another first-round pick. In essence, he got three firsts for just holding Kurt Thomas for for a couple of months. He did it, ladies and gentlemen. That was Sam Presti at his absolute best. Um, and then, uh, and so that was an example of us doing a terrible deal. Part of it was because our general manager got fleeced, but part of it was because of the stress that he had to deal with from an owner who was willing to pay the luxury tax, but not that much luxury tax. And that's an important distinction right there. So fast forward what we're talking about here. I think Robert will play the tax, but he'll definitely look to cut corners here or there. Now, the interesting thing is you cut corners by moving some of those names that you just named, Sarich and some of those other guys, or... Do you do it by moving the clearly unhappy DeAndre Ayton? Because I don't give a shit what that statement says. That guy's not <laughs> happy there. And he just he's happy he got his money, but he doesn't want it from there. And the Suns can't trade him without his acquiescence because he has a veto for the next year. But also, for the next year, he can't go to the place he presumably wanted to go, which was Indiana. Yeah, he's going to... He's going to have a lot of power um, within the Phoenix Suns tinkering uh, as they continue to try to, you know, once once you're in the title contending realm, 
it's an arms race. It's a never ending arms race. When it's when another team does something, you might have to respond, right? So right. he's gonna hold a lot of keys moving forward. Um I definitely want to get to a question from our our, our guy, Charlie Saturday. Um he's gonna ask something. I'm sure that would be fascinating as always. But first, I mean, as I always like to do, I've asked you a couple questions here. I think it's only fair. You don't have to, but do you have any questions for me? Oh man, uh See, here's the problem. Like, I don't know what questions I'm allowed to ask. You can ask. You can ask many. You can ask many things. Let's 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 keep it light. How was summer league for you? I, I we didn't <laughs> have a, like a post mortem afterwards. Yeah, um, summer league was good. Um, we got to meet in person for the first time. Got to yes, meet we did. A lot of people who it's funny. I feel like every summer league is peppered with first time interactions with people. Um, that you've known through telephonically for you know some people like almost a decade, uh, so that's always good to finally put put a name to a face. Um, had some had some good some good dealings. Uh, had, met some nice people on the team side of things. Um, and honestly, I was not prepared for how much of a zoo that place was going to be. Because last year, it was definitely not the same. I mean, it was still coming back. This was like yeah. beyond pre-pandemic levels, right? How about, uh, how about yourself? I wouldn't say that. I would say it was definitely – so last year, I likened it to like 2009 Summer League. Yeah. I had very much those vibes, which was – it was a good turnout. It just wasn't what it had been in the prior two or three years. I would say this year was somewhere like – the uh twenty four whatever year Jabari versus Wiggins was, th- that was the year where it was like, oh, this thing could. I think it's pretty big because that was the last time they put number one versus number two in the small gym. So oh, what yeah. the the history that, that, of this, that was a real that was a real AAU Saturday night yeah. championship game vibe. Yep, yep, like that. That the, to the those don't know summer league. When it was smaller, they the game that was like the marquee game, they put them in a small gym because they wanted it to look on TV very, very packed and energetic. Thomas and Mac is like a 20,000-seat arena. So even if you have 12,000 people, which is a lot for summer league, at a summer league game, interspersed throughout this huge arena, it's going to look like no one was there and there's no energy. So they used to put the big games, the, the, the televised games in the small gym, and then the lesser games in the big gym. But Parker versus Wiggins was the first time they put, or it was the last time they put one versus two, which is a little trick they always like to do. The marquee game is everyone see the number one overall pick versus number two overall pick, who got it right and all that shit. So they yep. put that in the small gym, but it was standing room only, and there was a line outside, and it was nuts. And they, they were like, oh, we can't do it like this anymore. We've got to move it to the bigger gym. And I think the year after that, whatever year the Lakers had like Lonzo Ball, it was like that was there was there was a bench in the game too. Yeah. Oh my god. Yes. Yeah, like it was there was this thing where it's like upper deck, lower deck, the whole building was full. And that was when it started really taking off. And one thing pre-pandemic like Zion and all that's what it was, right? Like there was there used to be a tarp in the upper deck at Thomas and Mac. No tarp anymore. It's like this thing's all the way open. Um, and then last year we went all the way back to humble beginnings, 
And this year it felt like that Jabari versus Wiggins game where you would walk in the Cox and there would be a line of people who couldn't get in. Uh, but Thomas and Max still wasn't 100% full. He maybe had a couple people in the upper deck, but not not that many. So um, if getting there, I think next year, you know, with Wambanyama, we'll probably have a lot more kind of excitement uh, to, about him. Yeah, and we'll sure. see uh, those pre-pandemic that. levels back. I mean, no one's seen this guy play, right? I mean, there's yeah, of, Scoot there's... Henderson. Scoot and yeah. what? What were you saying? Sorry. No, I, I was just saying like Scoot Henderson, but Wembenyama, like, well, well, no one, no one, no fans have seen him play. But over the year, we're going to I, that that hype train is going to for sure, get for sure, a lot of gasoline in it because I think people are going to look at. Wait, you're telling me that Oklahoma City and San Antonio already punted on their year before it even began? Like they already made moves, making sure that they were going to be in position for this? Yeah, it's happening. Like there are teams, and, and there are going to be more teams that are going to join them. Uh, Utah, some would argue, is doing the same thing as well. Yeah, they're punting on their season because they, they to get a chance at getting uh at getting uh um. You know this once in a lifetime type player. Yeah, I mean, Anthony Davis was the most hyped prospect since LeBron, and then Andrew Wiggins was the most hyped prospect since LeBron, and then Zion was the most hyped prospect since LeBron. Wembanyama is the most hyped prospect since LeBron. His hype yeah. supersedes all those guys. Um, all right, we're gonna go to Charlie Saturday and then call it a show, Charlie. Bring the heat, man. What do you got? Tough fellas. First, I gotta say, man, I could listen to like a sixteen-hour audio book on Boris Diaw's life. Great stuff. Um, this is something I've always been curious about, but I've, I've, <laughs> man, I've never. I'm gonna tell you right now, Charlie Saturday. Go ahead. Sorry, man. There's a slight delay. I think that, I think there's a little delay. It's all right. Go ahead. Okay, so yeah, so this is something I've always been curious about, but I've never had the chance to ask someone who actually worked in an NBA uh, organization. So I mean, hopefully you're that dude. I I'm always what becomes of like all the scouting reports and player personnel intel through the years, especially in like the pre-digitized, pre-synergy. Um, like, I mean, when you're with the Suns, you know, are you, is there like an archive room where you can flip through a dusty scroll with like, I don't know, Zarko Chabarkaba's medical reports and like, what, what is that team property or when these guys all change jobs, do they take notebooks with them of like the first time they shot, they saw Shaq or LeBron or, you know, like what becomes of all of that Intel, uh, through the years? So uh that's a great question um now obviously more and more it's all digitized all it's all housed on a server somewhere but i remember finding boxes upon boxes in the sun's front offices of like the dan marley scouting report like handwritten on yellowing paper and all that so you know that that stuff exists somewhere good organizations hang on to that i, I remember we had tapes we had tapes of all this stuff. And our, uh, when we had the switch in management uh, after Steve Kerr and David Griffin left and then 
a bunch of incompetent people came in. They were like, <laughs> what are these tapes? Get rid of them. And I'm like, we're not throwing this stuff. Why? When are we ever going to watch that? And I said, because the next time someone says, this guy reminds me of Amari Stoudemire in high school, I can pull out the tape of Amari Stoudemire in high school and say, no, he doesn't. He's not this good, right? We had that stuff on our hands. Um, and so a good organization, I would say, keeps that stuff forever because you want point of reference. When people make flippant comparisons to past players, you want to be able to read those reports. You want to be able to, to watch the film. Um, in terms of, like, I can tell you, I got on my computer right now every report I ever wrote. Um, I Look, I'll pull up the Anthony Davis one from Kentucky versus, what is it, Georgia. Kentucky 57, Georgia 44, um, January 24th. Um, offense, it's amazing how little Kentucky utilizes Davis on offense. He's almost like an afterthought. Hangs around short corners and baselines. Classes high from time to time. Fall for post position on either block, touched it exactly twice. Both times kicked it right back out to the post feeder. Was in no more than five pick and rolls. Gets out of the pick and roll with a lot of speed. Caught an alley tap in once, got fouled on the catch on another. Big time offensive rebounder. Starts his work before the shots are even up. Swim moves his way through the traffic. Will run out of bounds and pop up on the other side. Track loose balls all over the court. Failed physique caused him to be shoved under the basket a couple of times, but he finds a way to recover. Long, 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 long arms. Ran the floor effortlessly in transition. It would be scary to see him in an all-out sprint. And then there's some stuff on defense and then intangibles. Takes a special kind of kid to play as hard as Davis played for 39 out of 40 minutes and not get any touches or looks and continue to have a good attitude and positive outlook. This kid is all about <laughs> winning. Davis is a virtual lock for number one overall pick, mainly because of his ability to impact the game on the defensive end. His thrill fame will be an issue. He's going to be need to get a lot stronger to be able to bang with bigs on the next level, but he's a smart kid who knows how to play and works hard. Reminds me of Marcus Camby with a splash of young Kevin Garnett. And like that one is roughly close enough to what he ended up being. And I can find you one where I was like way, way, way off, probably from the same game, probably from my, Michael Kidd Gilchrist, right? Yeah. It just, you have these things. And like, I like to keep them again. Because when people say, oh, what did you think of so-and-so? Back? Like, you know, a, a great example is, as everyone's looking at Chet Holmgren and trying to uh, compare with, like, other skinny wing guys like Kevin uh, Durant and stuff like that, I have my Perry Jones scouting reports ready, like, just in case. Like, hey, if we want to talk about skinny guys who, are, who look skilled and stuff, but, you know, you could tell the difference. Like, I'm, like I'll read you the first line of Perry Jones. Perry Jones III is a skilled but underachieving big combo force. Jones simply did not show up tonight, right? And, like, already within two lines, you already know, okay, he's not like Tim Holmgren, right? Like, right there. Like, that's a massive difference between Perry Jones and Tim Holmgren. But it'd be easy for someone who did not have these reference points to say, yeah, but at Baylor, Perry Jones was the shit. Just kind of like Tim Holmgren. It's easy to make those comps sitting back on your couch. But the reality is our mind plays tricks on us. We don't remember things. So I would imagine every scout who submits a scouting report has a copy of their own that they keep to themselves. Uh, I would imagine every good organization keeps all that stuff housed in a database. And if it was handwritten, it was transcribed at some point. Good stuff. Appreciate it, guys. All right. Um, I will leave you with this. It was 
I believe, 2009 in this weird barn-like gym somewhere in South Jersey. Went to my trainer back when I was a promising young Division Three prospect. <laughs> and nice. Michael Kid Gilchrist walks in the gym. And when I was younger, I would do my shooting drills with the lower-level trainers, and I'd look over at the high schoolers. And the top two guys would always end practice playing one-on-one with, with three dribbles. And then the next two guys would end, end the session playing one-on-one with two dribbles and vice versa. So it was kind of like a thing where you move your way up the pecking order on which one-on-one game to get into. Right. So I look, I'm starting to look around at the end of this particular session. And I realize I'm number two. I'm going to be going against MKG. Nice. At the time, he was just he was just Michael Gilchrist. He was not Michael right. Kidd yet. I believe, I believe the kid is the name of an uncle or someone who helped out a lot after his father died. I don't, if I got that wrong, I really apologize. But there's some the kid definitely the hyphenated name came in late. Um, and so this dude is six eight. Committed to committed to Kentucky. Actually, I think he might have been committed to Memphis at the time before Cal had even yeah. moved over to Kentucky. And um, I was like, "All right." And first couple of plays, this dude takes one elbow into my chest, a dribble. He's at the rim. <laughs> he dunked on me so hard, Spalding was across my forehead for a couple of days after. It's five nothing by the time I finally get a handle. And we were able to check up at the ball at the top of the key. And I forget what I did to score the first bucket, but it was something where, like, I i mean, he was, like, 6'8". I'm, like, barely six feet tall. So I, I, like, did some, like, backyard move where, like, it made it look like I was losing control of the handle, and he reached for it, and I snapped it and stepped back into the three. Had, had one. Next play. I got, I drove left, head faked it out of his shoes. I got two. And my mom, my sweet mom comes over and says, Jakey, it's time to leave. No! And that was exactly no! my reaction. And it's even worse than mean. She asked me if I want to ask him before we go to take a picture. I was just oh, playing against this kid. <laughs> I was giving him work. It was probably the most embarrassing moment of my life. Followed um, by the two points that were probably the high point of my career at that point in time. Did, did, now, did she say Jakey? Was it like the... She might have like, even gone the full Jakey boy, honestly. She oh, might've. man. That's the, that's the ultimate. That is the... Oh, that's a kick in the balls, man. That's I'll never that, forget that. Obviously, that's going from the height of like, yo, I'm on top of the world. I'm taking, I'm taking this, this nationally renowned, uh, you know, prospect to task. To <laughs> do you want to take your picture with him? <laughs> oh my god! I would have uh, after I beat him. Come on, mom. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that's tough, man. That's a tough one. Man, uh, glad we finally connected. Keep doing your thing. And uh, if there's anything you want to plug before you go, have at it, man. Oh, man. Uh, let's see. Basketball Illuminati, basketball Illuminati, basketball Illuminati. 
That's the podcast where Tom Haberser and I seek to uncover what the mainstream media does not want you to know, help you keep your third <laughs> eye open. We've had truth tellers like Jake Fisher come on the program and really spread the gospel, spread knowledge. Remember, ladies and gentlemen, when everyone was denying that James Harden wanted out of Brooklyn, Jake Fisher was the one that told us, no, no, no. Like, this thing is shot, and it's over. Uh, so that's if you if you like stories like that, you, you want to know kind of how the league works behind the scenes and maybe not some day-to-day stuff, but bigger picture things, check us out at Basketball Illuminati. Also, Cinephobe, that's the podcast where Zach Harper and I watch movies that are poorly rated on Rotten Tomatoes and try to ascertain whether they're accurately poorly rated or maybe they didn't get a fair shake. Cinephobe is produced by Anthony Mays. You get it wherever you get podcasts. Uh, we're rounding out Alien Month, and we just dropped <laughs> Suburban Commando starring the one and only Hulk Hogan today. So make sure you check out that. And I guess Sirius XM NBA Radio, I'm on there from time to time. <laughs> That's all I'll put for now. There you go. Thanks again, man. Um, thanks to everyone for tuning in. I'll be back next week. I'm working on a couple interviews with some former players. That's all I'll say. Can't promise it's even going to work out because, as Amin knows, those can be some fickle dudes. Oh, but we're trying. I, we're trying. I, I have no leg to stand on. I wanted to. <laughs> I, that's my big thing. It's like, oh, players showing up on time to media availability. <laughs> oh, what, what, are, what are the odds? But now I can't even do that joke anymore because I, I just pulled – the ultimate. But look, man, all in the name of expenses. All in the name of expenses. I got to do my report next week. We'll be back next week. Have a good weekend, everybody. Good luck to everyone hoping to trade for Kevin Durant and Donovan Mitchell. And we'll talk to you next time. See ya.